So we're going to start. So Gabriel, just so you know, this is the Beyond the Rich podcast that started in 2019 um, when we had an undocumented DJ. I think it was DJ Sizzle come to school and I interviewed her on stage along with Danielle D'Antuano, um, a really about what it's like to be undocumented in specifically California, um, to be of Mexican descent, etc. Um, so from that, I got the idea to try to interview people with, you know, different interests in activism and different you know medias um and so today interviewing you because you have a really interesting life and i know you do a lot (laughs) you do um so like you do dear asian youth right yeah okay can you quickly go over what that is and kind of the objective when it started members etc so Essentially, Dear Asian Youth was started as a youth advocates program in April of 2020 mm-hmm. as a response to the lack of media attention towards anti-Asian hate and anti-Asian sentiments that was going on. At that time, I, I did an entire data pool recently for a research paper and it showed that nearly like anti-Asian hate had skyrocketed almost 196% at that time. But yet again, no, no mainstream media news source, no like CNN or Fox or any of those kinds of outlets were discussing them, even though they were happening at an accelerated and at an exacerbated rate. So Dear Asian Youth was formed by Stephanie Hugh, our mm-hmm. founder, and essentially started first as a, uh, a, as a literature platform where she could express those kinds of sentiments and what was going on in the world. And after it gained a bit of traction and we started to uh, create a movement, it slowly converted into a social media platform where we not only discuss the effects of anti-Asian hate today, but we also try to educate the public on Asian culture and kind of normalize that into society so that it's not some kind of exotic tradition anymore, but rather, you know, another way of life and another lifestyle, another simple, like a simple culture that a lot of people partake in. So yeah, that's the main mission of Dear Asian Youth, and that is mostly the backstory. All right. Um, and this is comprised mostly of students or how does that? Mostly of students. A lot of, a lot of students do are the main part of the, uh, of the um, group, but there are also some, you know, some adults that come in and want to help that we also include. And also it's honestly anyone who wants to, you know, take the initiative to apply and has, you know, certain, uh, certain outlets or talents that they could put to use to a really good cause great can you kind of describe what the application process was for you um in case anyone from my school would be interested Mm -hmm. the application process is fairly simple 
Um, a lot of times we are looking for, you know, different kinds of roles. Recently, we set out an application for a social media manager, a illustrator, and for example, my role currently is the video editing lead. And we constantly, we are in need of such positions. So mm -hmm. we give out announcements when applications start. And it's not a certainly a scheduled thing, but mostly really spontaneous. And we do give, you know, significant um, reminders of when an application opens. So what you do is that you go in and there are around, they ask you for your portfolio, your resume, your past work, and all of the, those certainly should be related to the position you're applying for. They also ask um, certain questions such as, you know, well, why do you want to join Dear Asian Youth? What can you bring to Dear Asian Youth? What can we bring to you? And that's almost like an essay format. You don't have to think of it as an essay, but it is like around 200 words long or so like that. <clears throat> and after that, if you do, you know, get chosen or you do, you know, uh, catch our eye, then we set up an interview with you, kind of get to know you a bit more, kind of get to know your goals, your targets, and all of that. And after that, we choose around 20 to 30 people every application wave. And from there, we admit them and uh, spend a few weeks just getting them to uh, adjust with our aesthetic, our entire, you know, our projects, our plans, our future works, and all that so that they can really work independently and apply their own creative uh, outlet towards our work. Because we don't just want people to be like, do this, do that, do this. We actually want your creative outlets and everyone around you is also a student. So there's like a sense of superiority, but like everyone is contributing at the same time. So we re we're really looking for that kind of talent that kind of knack with creativity so yeah that's almost the entire application project in a nutshell wow <laughs> that is very very in-depth and impressive um how many applicants do you usually get generally well from the applicants i've reviewed within one wave we get around for one position we get around 20 to 30. Okay. so depending on how many positions we have available and how many you know people we're actually looking for that always kind of changes and fluctuates got it okay and how did you find out about this well i at first come back from my first year of Brown, the Brown University program. So mm -hmm. that was around ninth grade. Yeah. And I met this, um, this, my friend called Mandy in that program. And essentially we grew really close and we talked a lot and we shared that kind of advocacy for anti-Asian hate. Mm -hmm. And when that entire thing started, she introduced me to Gary Asian youth because she was also applying too. Well, she was applying for a, uh, okay, let me explain this. So essentially, Dear Asian Youth also has chapters that you can make and you can make and you can lead. And essentially, that would be you taking control of a department in your county or your area or your state mm -hmm. that you control and you, you know, um, you bring on people to your team. And essentially, you do your own independent thing. And Dear Asian Youth just provides you with resources and whatever you need. Okay. And that, that chapter, she was applying to be a chapter lead. 
while she applied to be a chapter lead, I also joined her team while also applying to the national team. Got it. And yeah, so essentially I was like, at that time I was like really angry because I, I idolized the media because I know how powerful it is within mm -hmm. uh, influencing social behavior and social <clears throat> understanding. Yeah. And having that lack of media coverage really angered me. And when I was introduced to Eurasian Youth, I was like, why don't I do something, you know, instead of yeah. just sitting here being angry and just looking at a screen saying that they should do something, why don't I do something? And I found that I could. So I applied, I did the interview, which was really nerve wracking for me because like first interview in a long time. So yeah, it was all, it was all very new. But yeah, I applied because, you know, the entire thing made me angry and made me want to do something. And it turned out, I guess. It turned yeah. I think it did. <laughs> yeah. I think it did. Um, and from what I understand, there's multiple facets, right, to Dear Asian Youth. So you guys do podcasts, mm -hmm. you do videos. Do you have like a newspaper or kind of we do have a magazine magazine a magazine area we have a magazine area we have literature poems we have duration youth literature duration mm -hmm. lit actually um we also have the social media media managing so where you just create stories and uh script writing uh illustrating and also reviewing we have this group called dikf inclusion task force mm -hmm. that ensures that all of the work made by within dear asian youth and by people by um dear asian youth members are up to up to a certain standard are very diverse and um and ensure that what we're what we're making is essentially very <clears throat> what do you call it it's very inclusive essentially. And yeah, that, that kind of group would be, you know, reading through all of what we make or watching what we make and just uh, making sure that there aren't any insensitive topics or any of that. Okay. So you guys do everything. Mm -hmm. Just everything yeah. <laughs> in the world. Almost, almost everything. Almost. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So I want to ask more about kind of like your personal background. Can you describe your heritage, your ethnicity? um just kind of like well, your life story yeah go ahead <laughs> i'll get get ready for one hell of a story then um so i was born in arizona tucson in 2004 but my parents were korean immigrants that had come to america and met in america and after i was born i spent i lived in america for nine years until my parents took up a job um, and had to move out of the U.S. to Central and South America. Mm -hmm. And before going, we did go to Korea and essentially trained for the job. And then after that, we first went to Costa Rica. And in Costa Rica, we spent nearly around two years there. We had no professional or education in the Spanish language. Very hard, it's, except my mom. My mom had already, you know, like me, when she was at the age of nine, she um, left her hometown in Korea to go to, um, what do you call it? I think it was Paraguay. Yeah, Paraguay. She grew up there. She lived there. She, you know, essentially the uh, Latin culture was her childhood. So she really understood all of the, um, 
all of the Latin culture that we were going through and that we were currently in. So she was a really, you know, uh, a, a vital stepping stone in us, you know, adjusting to that culture. And after that, we, after Costa Rica, we had, you know, lived within a Latin community, learned the Spanish language. I myself attended a Spanish school for the first time, even though I didn't know anything of the Spanish language, that was pretty hard, but you know, <clears throat> it is what it is. And after that, we went to Nicaragua where there we spent the next seven years of our lives. And essentially what happened was that we, we sort of settled down there. We made an entire cafe. We, um, we stayed there for eight years and essentially, yeah, lived within Nicaragua. And within these countries, it was really, it was a bit difficult because a lot of the Latin culture within, Latin understanding within these countries, developing countries of Asian standards was mm. Chinese. And to them, Chinese were very dirty. They were, you know, dog eaters and mm -hmm. all of all of the you know usual negative stereotypes yeah <clears throat> so there would be you know um stereotypes and names such as chino cochino and chinito pequeño chinito y todo eso and all of that sorry um <clears throat> no don't say sorry they i hear it <laughs> it's a yeah. thing it needs to stop Continue. it is it is. So honestly, there, uh, my entire identity seemed to shatter. Like, I hated being Asian. I hated being, you know, understood as this type of, you know, this type of dirty, you know, human being that had, that was, you know, somehow biologically made this way. Mm -hmm. But then I did also find a Korean community, which I, I first took shelter in because, you know, it's a Korean community. I wanted to feel home. I wanted to find somewhere I was home. But as I would come to notice, a lot of the community communities, even American and Korean, I did not fit in. In Korean communities, I was too American to fit in. Yeah. And in American communities, I was way too Korean or way too Asian to fit in. Mm -hmm. I felt this like massive displacement. And I that caused me to look towards America as this land. I idolized America as it's like land of the free. Yeah. This was where I was home. This was where I was normal. This was where yes. I was, you know, where I was protected and seen. And then after those seven years, I went to Colombia. And a lot of those stereotypes were still reinforced because it seems to be, you know, a, a shared perspective among a lot of these countries. And after the COVID-19 pandemic started, I returned to America for safety issues. Yeah. And that's when my, even my, my view of America as the land of the free was shattered yet again. Yeah. Because as soon as I came back, the entire BLM movement exploded along with the, um, along with the anti-Asian anti hate and yeah. the anti-Asian sentiments exploded. And honestly, I, I began to really think like, America isn't my home either. Yeah. If America isn't my home and the place they grew up wasn't my home and the place where my parents from were, were my home, then yeah. where was my home, you know? Yeah. And then the Asian youth came into the picture. And I, when I first joined there, I was mostly just, you know, I, I was looking for something to hold on to. You know, I was looking for an ideal or a perspective to learn and to hold on to in order to maintain my identity, in order 
become proud of my identity as an Asian American, as yeah. both. And there I, I met a lot of people who were sharing my, my problems. A lot of people had that same kind of identity crisis and home dilemma. Like they didn't know where their home was. They were Asian, but they had never been to their country, to their Asian country that their parents had come from. They, mm. they were Asian, but they didn't speak their Asian language, their, yeah. you know, their parents' language. And it was, it was really, it was comforting to see that I was the only one suffering from these things. And it was comforting to see that I wasn't the only one who was, you know, who was, who was thinking these kinds of um, negative thoughts and intrusive thoughts. And that I feel like that's where I really started to cement my identity as an Asian. Like, okay, it's okay. To be an Asian American, I don't have to be Asian. I don't have to be American. I just have to be who I am. And there are people who will share my identities and my perspectives and what I love and what I, you know, what I prioritize and all of all of the above. Yeah. So yeah, that was essentially my entire journey through Latin America, America, and Korea, and all that. Everywhere. Yeah. So, but Everywhere. it's. <laughs> That's really interesting because this whole idea of your identity, right, is contributed to by the United States, yeah. Latin, um, Latin America, because you are mm-hmm. kind of Latin in so many ways, <laughs> <laughs> the ways that I talk to you, Korean, mm-hmm. um, and then you just have that overall international aspect. But it's, I just want to, it's touching on the the latin american thing i definitely want to acknowledge that there is a lot of misconceptions of like the asian american community in latin america Mm -hmm. i think the one place possibly in latin america where it could be different is peru i'm peruvian Mm -hmm. um and that's just probably because there was there's a, a huge combination between chinese japanese um in like mm-hmm. latin american culture there yeah I, I did i did notice that because even like within a lot of you know asian and asian american pop culture there's there's a, a kind of and even when i was like learning u.s history there's a kind of like shared pain within you know peruvians and asians within america within immigrating to america and i found that kind of you know um, camaraderie and that kind of uh uh community really interesting because i had never like throughout my entire life my asian and my latina latino community had Mm -hmm. always conflicted and contrasted but Mm -hmm. learning that kind of history and seeing that kind of representation within pop culture of not these two communities conflicting but rather cooperating and becoming you know almost like family was really interesting and I, i i i was so happy to see that Yes, you need to come to LA, go to the restaurant <laughs> Chifa, because they have an entire, oh, yeah. it's a really cool, it's like mm-hmm. Chinese, Peruvian, American family, <laughs> they make food, the design is amazing, but um, there is a lot of conflict, I think, between the Asian and Latin American community, I think that can also, that's like further complicated in many ways, specifically, I think also by the model minority myth. That kind of fits into it and there's like oh yeah a person sometimes there's a perception of latinos that it's like yeah it's completely I-, I even had a conversation with my sister who's currently attending uva on that entire model minority essentially yeah. i i really think that it's it's severely detrimental because it's not reflected just within the asian community but within 
all minority communities, especially in America. I within my conversation with her, she had recently made friends with uh, her roommate who was African American. Yeah. But then she this that that roommate was really she was very studious. She put priority on her studies and her education a lot, mm-hmm. and she really she was very educated. Yeah. But within having that kind of you know educate educated mindset. A lot of people, especially the white people within Virginia, were telling her like, "Oh, you're the whitest black person I've ever seen," and a lot of that. So then, what what I was what I was wondering was that okay, so then in order to be black, you have to be you know uneducated and always yeah. you know from you know the slums. Yeah, is that some some kind of you know like some kind of requirement that you have to meet in order to identify as some kind of race? Yeah, and I saw that reflected within within Latinos. So, like, oh, if you're not some kind of you know maid, or if you're not some kind of you know super you know smart immigrant, then you're not Latino. You're like an, a white Latina. Yeah, and that I, I I just thought of that entire mindset and that entire you know entire judgment as obscenely absurd. Yeah, it's it's definitely because there's an expectation for you to be uneducated. Um, to not be ambitious, to not be hardworking. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, I, you know, I go to a, a school where it's, I think Latinos are about like 6% or less. And for black people, mm-hmm. the population there is, is less. And it's like, I hear a lot of conversations like around me of people saying like, oh, affirmative action and like getting upset about it when, you know, white women were the number one beneficiary of affirmative action. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's like for me, as someone who like puts a, a you know puts a lot of work into like my studies, mm-hmm. into my academics, into my extracurriculars, yeah. it it creates that feeling of imposter syndrome, right? Oh yeah. Um, it's like I'm never going to be on the same level as you guys because I look different because I have a different cultural mindset. Um, you're not expect you're not allowed to be emotional right? You can't be the emotional no. brown person. You can't be the emotional black person. Um, Not at all. No. And I'm emotional. <laughs> yeah. I- Not, I, I'm emotional too. You know, like I have a lot, I, 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 I see a lot of flaws within, you know, within conversations and within interactions with people. And I, 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 I want to, you know, I, I don't want to be I don't want to be subjected to a judgment where I have to stay silent or I have to, you yeah. know, just take it all in and be, you know, submiss- submissive yeah. you know, within that kind of, within that kind of situation. No, I want, I want to speak up. I want to, you know, I want to, uh, I want to correct a certain deficiency. But the thing is that even though like, just, just in words, it might not seem like a big deal, but still being judged as not my race and not my community as like not asian yeah. if i do uh, if i do interact within these you know within these more outgoing personalities it's very hurtful to me because it while while i can say like oh i don't care about that like i don't care what people call me what i don't care what people you know see me i still do it still does affect my life it still does affect my perspective no matter how much I try to ignore it and no matter how much I try to dismiss it as not important it still does uh, have a really vital component within my social life 
and within yeah. how I identify as my strength and my um and my reassurance within my identity. Yeah. So that entire thing was it's very it's very detrimental towards the people who are being inflicted. Yeah, because it you have to code switch, right? And in a sense, yeah. it kind of inhibits your personal growth as a person, right? So if you're mm-hmm. you're at school, you have to be more serious, calm, collected. And at home, you go crazy and you yell at your parents. Yeah. <laughs> and your sister. Um, but, you know, I think going back to the Latinx and Asian community, I think there are uh, many cultural differences, like a lot. But the one main similarity, and I think the one, like, really strong connection is probably family that I've noticed. Oh, let me tell you about family. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, that is true because a lot like I've I've seen a lot of um I've I've had friends who had vastly differing relationships with their family. But just seeing Asian and Latinos Latino culture in family and regarding family, it's very family is essentially a foundation upon the other relationships relationships that you build family is the most important component within growing and within developing as a person and i feel like that kind of relationship and that kind of that kind of view and perspective on family is really important Mm. because i often i see some really really dysfunctional and toxic a family relationship within America that I am almost surprised that they exist and that they function, you know? Mm-hmm. And that that was one thing that I also had some a kind of a culture shock coming mm-hmm. back from La- Latin America. And that was that was something that I really I really thought about and I really pondered as I was, you know, moving back to this country that I had previously left. And that was really unfamiliar territory for me mm-hmm. again. So that entire that entire family dynamic is really interesting to see and observe and analyze. And like, um, because it had something that had subconsciously been uh, been a foundation of my life. Because I never I never I never thought that my relationship with my family was something special or something different from other what other people had. But yeah. seeing those differences realized me. Oh. I see. So then I guess this kind of culture and this kind of um, these traditions and these mutual understandings built my relationship with my family to be different and to be yeah. unique and to be, you know, um, vastly uh, contrasting that of what other people view as normal. Okay. Contrasting, yeah. can you describe in what, in what way, like contrasting to the American family dynamic, contrasting to the Asian family dynamic? Um, the American family dynamic. Okay. Because I see that within Latin and Asian cultures, it's very, it's very frequent that family is on top. You know, family yeah. is the number one. Always, always, your mother, your father, your sister, your siblings—they yes. are number one within our relationships. But when I came to America, I saw a lot of, um, a lot of common, you know, common uh, patterns situations where. Yeah, patterns where a lot of people dismiss their family, more like, you know, just friends or, you know, people that they lived with. And yes. I saw that entire that that entire dynamic, like 
really crazy and a bit i i was not a fan of that dynamic even when my sister came back from boarding school she would no doubt like she went to boarding school in 11th in ninth grade and she stayed there for one year in minnesota yeah and came back to nicaragua yeah and when she did come back she really she really put an emphasis on all of the family dynamics where you know their the kids would call their parents by their first name and just you know have frequent fights with them like physical fights and all of that and she was pointing out of how you know how detrimental and absurd that was and how she was really surprised of how, what she saw and I, I first thought that that was really over exaggerated because you know my entire my entire ideology and my entire identity and culture and persona was built upon my family Mm-hmm. But when I did come to America, I, I, I saw those same kinds of patterns and those same kinds of dynamics occurring within families of my friends and family of my, you know, of my peers. And that was, that was really interesting to see and a bit, a bit painful to see, too. Well, there's definitely, I think, an emphasis on um, in the American. Well, what I, I feel weird sometimes saying the American culture because I think that it's so diverse within itself. Um, but there's in, in TV and media and film, there's a a huge emphasis on kind of leaving your family, you know, moving to another state. Um, the, the main character, like rolling their eyes when their mother calls and just being like, yeah, and like being very upset, Mm -hmm. um, which for me is very different because my whole family lives within kind of the same area right like I live in in Pasadena I live in Pasadena um and the rest of my family lives in the valley which is a a little bit of a stretch but we're we're gonna visit them you don't have a choice (laughs) you have to visit your family you have to go see them Mm -hmm. because if you don't rule it's the law (laughs) it's a rule it's a law and for me I think there is a a little more resistance to that because I I noticed within within my school and just within like where I went, it wasn't as big of, of a deal. Um, and like people were more focused on their, their lives where they lived, I guess, in terms of school, in terms of hanging out with friends, in terms of doing this. And I'm like, I don't want to drive all the way to the valley to eat tortas with my grandma. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm joking. Like, I, love I, I, I take, I take, Frequent, I take frequent enjoyment within meeting my family and especially like even even just small you know discussions even you know just holidays I take enjoyment in that but I saw that that wasn't that wasn't shared yeah because I, I'm applying for colleges and universities right now and I'm in the middle of my call common apps yeah but my my friends are also currently applying for college yeah, but I saw that a, a frequent, you know, a frequent requirement for them and a frequent, you know, a, a really important factor for which college that they apply to was getting away from their family. Yeah, they wanted to, you know, be farther away. They wanted they didn't want to be in the same state. They wanted to, you know, move across the country or across, you know, a, to another state to get away from their families. They, yeah. That was a really important part of their decision. And I took, I, I, I was really surprised at that because I, 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 I had never considered the position of my family to play a role within my decision of where I went or where yeah. I attended college. And that, that was the first for me. 
but that that was also another pattern that I noticed of the entire different family dynamic. Yeah, I think for me, I think there is kind of a desire to to be in another place to kind of figure yourself out as a separate individual, as mm-hmm. a separate entity. But I also do love seeing, I do love seeing my family. I think I need to go do more. Um, <laughs> but I like to see them when I'm, I'm present and I'm calm um, and I'm not yeah. stressed. But I think it's, I keep hearing it's like, right now you're going to want to leave, right? And you're going to want to go somewhere mm-hmm. ent- entirely different where there's a huge distance. But when you get there, it's just a whole nother deal, right? It's like, have you seen In the Heights? I have not. Mm, I can't uh, believe you haven't seen that. I, I have not. I, honestly, I, I I have it downloaded. I have it within my flash drive right now. But I am I have the ACTs coming up on September 11th. Yeah. And I am just cramming for that every day. I'm doing a practice test every day. I'm correcting every day. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. So honestly, I had just a list of movies and things I want to do after the test is over. Because this is like my last, la- my last standardized test. After this, it's just essays and 12th grade. That's yeah. it. <laughs> so I have so I have so many things I have to do. And I am so looking forward to Into, into the Heights. I've only heard good things about it. I, I am definitely going to watch that after. Well, I know it's, I, I know you're going to be done soon with all the, like pretty fairly sooner than a lot of people yeah. with your college stuff. So I think yeah, you'll yeah, have, yeah. you'll have some time for that. But um, my dog is outside the door. I have a chihuahua, by the way. <laughs> chihuahua, chicharita. Um, but like, there's this main character, her name's Nina. And like her whole life, she's, she's worked towards going to a top college, right? She's like gotten the best grade. She's gotten all the financial aid she can get. And then she, she gets to her school all the way in California. Um, and it's just the shock, the culture shock of it, which is, it's not that, I don't think that I, I've grown up in this type of culture. So it's, it's different. Um, just stuns her, right? Like I think her oh, roommate, yeah. her roommate accused her of stealing something, um, which is, it happens to a lot of brown and black people. Like my sister. It actually does. My yeah. sister was accused my sister. three times. Three times of stealing books. Yeah, three times. Which is a, a like, lot. A lot. Like, you'd expect that, you know, simmer down after a while. But it, it honestly doesn't. And I feel like that's also a, that's an example of the still present, you know, racism and discrimination and stereotypes that exist within America. Like yeah. That, that, it's not, it's. Like, a lot of people think that, oh, after, you know, the entire slavery thing ended and after the entire immigration thing ended, oh, America's fine. No, America's, there's nothing, you know, there's no segregation, there's no, you know, there's no stereotypes and all of that. And that's what I also thought, too, because coming from a Latin, Latin community, an Asian community, that was what I thought of America. But as I came here, like, that's not it. There's still, there's still so many fundamental problems there's so many problems with race with even gender with um sexualities there's so many there's so many issues present within america that are often frequently overlooked yeah i I have a feeling it's and it's definitely not just the you know the social emotional psychological aspect of it it's it's 
for me, it's always the economic. Like there's this comedian, her name's yeah. like Dulce Sloan. Um, her whole thing is like, if you want to, if you want change, you have to, to mess with the man's money. She says it in different <laughs> terms, but I'm going to be appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and it's like, with looking from a brown and black perspective, right, with like the lowest mm-hmm. socioeconomic status in this country, there's, it's, it's so much more than than just changing people's minds and i feel like also the immigration aspect of it i think specifically in my community is in in my i mean my school community um and well no not just my school community and like the general pasadena community is incredibly overlooked even though we're in california yeah which is right next to latin america like connected literally like literally I, I i i before i left before i left for latin america i lived in california i lived in um i lived in irvine and pasadena and i saw you know like for me california was a very diverse place a, an extremely diverse place in irvine irvine was literally literally like a a town of asians and a town of you know of people of my family essentially yeah and Pasadena was a town of Latinos and a lot of you know a lot of diverse cultures and traditions and it really surprised me when I first saw like this like overlooking of um essential problems yeah this is such a diverse place why why aren't we you know why aren't we tackling and confronting these problems why are we ignoring them why are we overlooking them why are they invisible to us even though we're even though our community consists of thousands of cultures and traditions from different places yeah that, that's one thing that confused me well it's like i think pasadena was i don't know i this may be wrong i'm pretty sure it's right was the last city in california to desegregate um which for where it's at now which is incredibly diverse that's a huge feat um Mm. the last two presidents of the tournament of roses one was latina the other was um a black man it's huge it's just everything is so it's still deeply redlined these communities are so separated right so like all these private schools and a lot most of the private schools are primarily like asian and are primarily white um whereas like in the public schools it's it's black and brown it's just it's so diverse there's so much opportunity for intercultural yeah. communication yeah, it's really. just the institutions are are so separated you know yeah i i that that's a problem that is it it's it's not only in it's not only in america i feel like within within um Korea, within Latin America, within Nicaragua and Costa Rica, there are a lot of communities that are very diverse that yeah. very, that consist of so many identities. But instead of becoming interconnected and becoming mm-hmm. dependent, they are very conflicted. They yeah. are contrasted. They are they. It's essentially minority against minority. Yeah. A lot of the times, that's what I saw. And a lot of the times I feel like within times of struggle, I, I, I expected people to come together, mm-hmm. especially minorities and people who are suffering. Mm-hmm. But I found that that was harder to implement than said. 
mm-hmm. I saw a lot of the a lot of hardships start start targeting minorities against minorities. They mm-hmm. start they start blaming other minorities for their struggles, and that's that's the first thing that I saw in Nicaragua. In Nicaragua, when I was um, when I was living in Nicaragua around 2015 or 2013, um, the Nicaraguan riots started. And yeah. a lot of people were hurt and a lot of people were, you know, were subject to authoritarian rule and authoritarian consequences. But within the midst of that, I, my, my parents work are, are, is very, you know, is very social based. They essentially go around to countries, to developing countries, to build homes, to aid people, to, you know, help out the communities. Yeah. But within those times, a lot of the people that we worked with, especially, you know, um, Asian and white families who were the minorities within that time, within mm-hmm. that country, left. Yeah. They came to, they, they, uh, they were always talking about coming to help, coming to help the community, coming to, you know, support people. But at the first sign of difficulty and the first sign of pain, they began to leave. Yeah. And I, I saw that, like, you guys were supposed to be our teammates, you know? You guys were supposed, you were supposed to be a community. We were supposed to uplift these people when they were, you know, when they were suffering. Yeah. But when they are truly suffering, when this country isn't, you know, the paradise you had come to, you know, you had come to look forward to, you just leave. Yeah. You abandon everything. You abandon our work. You abandon your, you know your your own you know latin community and you leave and i i, I took a lot of anger at that because my family didn't leave. my yeah. family my family was really really fixated on staying and helping out and we did but as as i watched like within my own neighborhood my neighborhood was cons- consisted of all of a lot of those you know asian and white families it was absolutely barren at those times. Everyone left. There was no one around. And even when we were helping out, like uh, what once became community effort, just became us. You know, yeah. us and the the Latin community that was suffering. That's I think part of why there is so much xenophobia and racism yeah. within Latin America. Because I, I have to speak to this. There's this book called Open Veins of Latin America, right? And it's essentially about kind of all the, like the international interests that came to Latin America, um, used its plethora of resources, abused the people, got the money, and then left. And so, like, especially I I went to Tequila, Mexico, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of international people were just buying up different companies and corporations within Tequila, which Mm -hmm. is incredibly Mexican. Mm -hmm. It's such a vital yeah. tradition it's like li- recently i think i saw name's not kendall is it kendall it's a jenner i don't know uh, i i don't i don't know either i'm not i'm not educated in that kind i don't of know culture. <laughs> um but she she had purchased i think i don't know some uh, some land in tequila and she had created her her own brand i'm not going to say the name because you guys shouldn't buy it um and she she had a video of her like working uh, in the fields with the workers, and she had her hair down in the t- you know the two traditional braids that yeah. a lot of Mexicanos, a lot of indigenous people like to wear. Mm-hmm. She's like wearing a sarape and like 
doing all that stuff. And I just, I just thought about that. I was like, that's why there's, there's so much fear. There's so much fear because it's this constant abuse where you do all the work. And I see this now, and then you never get to benefit from it because people take it and then they leave. Mm -hmm. And that has a lot to do with the colonial history. It really does. Even, even just studying AP U.S. history this past year, I, I saw a lot of that. Like even even within the Native Americans, and even within like Cuba and um, and Peru, like it was so. It was very manipulative. I think. Yeah. And I, I feel like that that's a foundation of the uh, of the stereotypes that other countries have of Americans and that other countries have of, you know, Asians and mm -hmm. Latinos. It's even within Nicaragua, the place where I grew up, a Asians were viewed as dirty because they had a history of, you know, of taking advantage of mm -hmm. a lot of Nicaraguan businesses and a lot of Nicaraguan, you know, um, culture. Like, there, it wasn't just that, you know, people saw us as dirty or that they were just mean. Yeah. There is a significant history behind the xenophobia and behind the discrimination that occurs within these countries. Yeah. And I feel like I feel like that's also something really important to understand because it's not always, oh, they're just being mean or oh, they're being insensitive or oh, yeah. they're maleducado or like badly yeah. educated. It's there uh, there's always significant history on these kinds of racism and while they're still detrimental i feel i i feel a sense of duty to to rectify them to yeah. show these people or pe any people who meet me and first have those kinds of impressions that i'm not that you know that yeah. i am that i i do not abide by those standards and i and essentially that i'm not that kind of sino cochino that you understand all asians to be such a terrible word it's just so annoying honestly it's yeah. just like shut up yeah <laughs> yeah there's just it's it's all it's all fear it's the thing it really is. that's why it's like when we have these conversations about about race like for me i try not to immediately get give back into the hate that's been directed at me right like the yeah. emotional poison mm -hmm. because there's there's a lot to understand, right? Mm -hmm. It's a it's a lot of fear. Um, I was like in a, a conversation, and it was it was for school, right? And it's you know the what happened at the Capitol. You know what happened at the Capitol. Who doesn't know what happened at the Capitol? Uh, yeah, uh, that happened at my birthday. <laughs> that happened on my birthday. Man. <laughs> Happy birthday, January hey. sixth. Feliz cumpleaños. Yeah, that's great. Um, that's terrible. Uh, and I was in this conversation and there's this one person and they're incredibly intelligent. They're very smart. They had a lot of points, very vocal. Um, and what they said, they, the woman who had gotten shot, you know, the woman who got shot, um, who was one of the insurgents, this individual said, I rejoice um, in that woman's death because they were so angry and upset about what happened. And for me, I was like, I had a mixed response to that because at the same time I was angry. Yeah. I was like, how could you do that? But I think what's important is you shouldn't immediately give into that anger and you should think 
it's sad that it had to come to that. You know, like I don't, I feel, I feel, I feel bad for, for certain forms of ignorance, you know? That's, that's a thing that I, even I've been battling for a long time. Like, of course, being, being subject to these kinds of stereotypes and being subject to these kinds of hate, especially even if you're a subject of like, you know, violent hate crimes, that, that is infuriating absolutely you know just vain pulsingly infuriating and just even watching that too but then again while i am infuriated at all of those you know everything that's going on i i i feel that if if given the chance i i wouldn't you know if there was a chance for me to you know inflict that kind of pain on others more so i would want to avoid that because yeah. instead of that pain, uh, you know, that pain inciting some kind of form of vengeance, I feel like when whenever I feel that kind of pain, I want to take a more prohibitive action. You know, yeah. I want that stop not be passed on to others. No matter, even though if it's the person who inflicted them, even though if it's the community that inflicted them, I would want. I, I don't. I don't want. I wouldn't want this to become like a chain reaction. That's that's just gonna. I feel I have a really strong feeling that in the end, that always comes back to me. That comes always comes back to my community and my identity and my yeah. race. So I I genuinely believe in the power of prohibitive action rather than violence. Yeah. Rather than you know taking rejoice within within vengeance, I feel like taking rejoice within prohibition and taking rejoice within uh within um what do you call it uh there was a word that was perfect for this but i do not remember it because my vocabulary is just stuck up here <laughs> that's totally but yeah okay. just taking yeah prohibitive action and just things and reluctance and attempting to prevent preventative actions preventative. are really powerful within these situations yeah I got to agree with that. It's, it's tough though, when you try to take those prohibitive actions, yeah. that, that it doesn't go your way too. That's, there's such a, it's such a toss up, you know? Um, yeah. And I, it's hard. It's hard trying it to make any sort of change though. Cause then constantly, consistently, it's like you're beat down and beat back and you really just don't want to care and give up. Cause it's really easier. like everything is against you in that moment like there are people that are going to support you but more than the people that you support you that support you the people who impact you are going to be the people who are against you and that's yeah bad. within those kinds of situations if you do try to take prohibitive action there may be thousands of people that support you but the people that are going to affect you the most and that are going to affect the situation the most are the people who are going to oppose you it's also the people that have the power whether it's yeah. economic mm -hmm. or privilege or everything <laughs> like or everything everything <laughs> everything all right so i think it's been i don't know if it's been an hour it's been i think less than that i can't yes. I, it's 10.05 <laughs> did we not start at we started at 9 10 correct almost i i think so okay so it's I, almost I'm not sure <laughs> okay well Let's wrap up because my dog is still upset that I haven't given her any attention. 
chihuahua. You gotta give the dog's attention, man. She's so annoying. <laughs> so annoying. Oh my god. Okay. <laughs> so, is there anything else you want to say? Is there anything you want to plug um, in terms of uh, your work in Dear Asian Youth or? Um. Well. No. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to really encourage everyone to, if, if you can, apply for Dear Asian Youth. I, I wanted to emphasize that we aren't, you know, Asian exclusive. Like, we do put an emphasis on Asian identities because more than, more than any other identity you attempt to support, your support for your own identity is going to be the strongest, you know? Yes. That's why... That's why a lot of our communities is full of Asians and a lot of Asian Americans. But even I've also worked with a lot of people from other races and they are amazing. They are, you know, they are really, really influential within this entire platform. And yeah. I really wanted to encourage everyone, like, I, currently is a time where we all feel a lot of yeah we feel a lot of you know we feel a lot of distress and a lot of um frustration even with the delta virus coming up again now as like a second wave but i wanted to i wanted to encourage you to take action mm-hmm. um if it's not the Asian youth there's also other other platforms such as Generations, africa chronicles diversify your diversify your story i think Mm-hmm. Um, no, diversify your narrative. There are mm-hmm. so many other student-based and um, advocacy organizations that are actually bringing change right now. Yes. And even though it may not seem like it, one person, one one person, one student can bring out a lot of change. You can the work that they create comforts entire communities, entire populations. It brings security to a lot of people it even brings security to the people working on it it brings security to those viewing it and to those indulging in their works and honestly i wanted to really emphasize that even though it may not seem like it even one student one ninth grader 12th grader 11th grader one even even middle school elementary school no matter what you are you have the capability of making change you have the capability of inciting change and influencing and, and influencing it and just really take that first step even though it may not seem like it apply try to you know just put your name out there put your foot in the water and see how it goes and i assure you it's gonna go out really great it's gonna it's gonna work out for you yes or join student voices if you go to my school yeah <laughs> um all right is there any is there an instagram you want people to follow any platform Dear Asian Youth, is that the Instagram handle? Yes, yes, at Dear Asian Youth. Okay. Thanks, Gabrielle. Um, today we have three generations of students, Amari Gator, Shanir, and then we have Tree. Or when I was like looking around, um, Columbia was a particular standout because it has like the highest percentage of like black students within the Ivy League. And for my other idea, I was just like, I just want a good school. I want a school that will give me an opportunity to excel at like whatever I end up doing.